Emmanuel. What does the name mean to you? To some, it's an actual name. Uh, not so popular in the UK, but when I lived in France, one of my best friends there was called Manu, uh, which was short for Emmanuel. And in my brief time as an Arsenal supporter, uh, <laughs> very brief, uh, discovered Emmanuel Adebayor, Emmanuel Ebue. Seemed like everyone called Emmanuel wanted to play uh, for Arsenal. But uh, there's plenty of examples all over the world. Uh, to some, it's just a name. To others, it's a very, very dodgy series of movies in the 1970s. Uh, We'll skip over that one, just don't Google it. You might not get the results that you're expecting. To some, it's a trendy name to call your church. Uh, Not naming any names, Martin Woodier, predecessor. People like to call their church Emmanuel. Uh, That's quite a popular name uh, nowadays for a church. To some, it's something that you hear at Christmas. And it reminds us of those Christmas readings that we we had before. And the one uh, from Matthew, all this took place. To fulfil what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you're wondering what it means, spoiler alert, that tells us, doesn't it? It means God with us. Um, For Matthew, it means that Jesus has come to be God with us. But the term doesn't just start with Jesus. Actually, it's much older than that, and it's got a much bigger history uh, than that. So in this series, as we've been looking at the names of Jesus, we've been looking back through the Bible to see how these names appear. So this evening, we're going to do a brief tour of the Bible to understand what it means that Jesus is God with us. Now, we'll be flicking all over the place. Do feel free to, to jump along. But if not, do feel free afterwards to ask me. I've got all the, um, the references here, so you can ask me afterwards. So we're going to start, first of all, with the sentence. The phrase, God is with, is found all the way uh, through the Bible, uh, all over the place. I won't give you all the references, but God being with someone is used of Abraham, Ishmael, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the tribe of Judah, judges in general, specifically Gideon, Samuel, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Israel, and the exiles in Babylon. So the phrase God is with somebody is actually all over the place in the Bible. And generally, it means something along the lines of God is on their side. God is working for their good. So a brilliant example of this is Joshua. Uh, Sorry, not Joshua, Joseph. Get the right person. So in Genesis 39, verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. Genesis 39 verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Finally, Genesis 39, 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And it's even used that way in the New Testament. So another Christmassy one, Luke 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 29, uh, 28. When the angel comes to Mary, he says, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. So really, it's a way of showing that God is, is working for somebody's good. God is working on their side. And in a bit of a way, it's used that way in that passage we had in Isaiah. Uh, We are told, aren't we, that the enemies are going to be, that they're fearing, are going to be destroyed. Why? Because God is with them. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Because actually, 
God is with them has a bit of a different side to it by the end of that reading, doesn't it? But we'll come to that a bit later on. But we're told that a child is going to be born that will be called Emmanuel. And it signifies that God will be on their side. Whatever the enemy does, it cannot stand because God is with them. Now, in this original context, it would seem like the prophecy in verse 14 of of, of Isaiah 7 means something like this. By the time a virgin has got married, got pregnant, born a son and weaned him, your enemies will be brought to nothing and all that I've said will come to pass. When in the matter of months, Syria and Ephraim will be gone so that you can call the child God is with us because your enemies there will not succeed. Of course, that doesn't exhaust the meaning, does it? I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about it. How would that be a sign? If it was just a regular birth of a child, how would that be a sign? And in fact, here no child is mentioned other than the one that's born by Isaiah's wife, who isn't called Emmanuel. He's called that name that Elaine read out expertly, Mahal Meher Shalal Hashbaz, not Emmanuel. And actually his name, the, the child's name, is a sign of destruction, not of rescue. And similarly, though, the same idea is used. By the time you can say mama and dada, something will happen. The northern tribes will be taken by Assyria. So if you think about it, how, how can that be a sign if it's just a normal birth? Because births were happening all the time. And also, how would it be a sign if actually the thing doesn't come to pass until the child was grown up? Do you get my meaning? So, For example, how would it be a sign that the, your enemy is being destroyed by the time this child has grown up? is a sign that your enemies will be destroyed. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? So the sign actually must be something bigger. Ultimately, it must be referring to something incredible. Because the sign that the king is asked to give is a sign that could be as high as the heavens or as deep as the sea. Just a woman giving birth doesn't really do that, does it? It's not something on a scale. I mean, birth is an everyday miracle, isn't it? But it's not a miracle on the scale of the highest heavens or or the deepest seas. No, this prophecy must refer to something special. Something that really doesn't come about until an actual virgin is with child. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and the virgin conceives. And when that happens, it's meant to show us that this prophecy is being fulfilled. God is with his people. God is for his people, not against them. You can see it uh, by the end of that that verse that actually God's presence with a people can be terrifying, can't it? Actually, God with us could be a terrifying thing, as we'll see in a few moments' time. How is it then that God with us is good news? How can it be that God being with his people is not terrifying, especially when you think of how sinful we are? And when God is with us, how is that good news? Well, we're going to see that as we look at the story that runs through the Bible, the story so far of how God can live and dwell with his people. Well, the story starts in the Garden of Eden, where God lived with his people. We're told that he walked with them in the cool of the day. And when they sinned, they hid themselves, it says, from the presence of the Lord. It's as though they're trying to get away from God being with them. They feel the weight of their sin. They feel the shame of their sin. And God, of course, in punishment, cast them out from his presence, cast them out from the garden. God would not dwell with sinful people. That's the message. 
And this is repeated again and again through the Bible, all the way in Exodus, all the way through to Deuteronomy. It culminates with God speaking to Moses after the incident with the golden calf. Uh, this is what uh, God says to Moses in Exodus 33.3. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God says to them, you can go, but I'm not going to go with you. I can't dwell amongst you because actually if I dwell with you, if I dwell among you, all that will happen is I will consume you. They've just demonstrated just how sinful and stubborn they are. And God says to them, no, I'm not going to go with you. So Moses begs with God to go. Exodus 33, 15 to 16. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses has got something right here, hasn't he? Moses says that the thing that really makes his people distinct is God with them, God going with them, God dwelling with his people. So God relents and promises to go with them. But in that we're left with a bit of a mystery, aren't we? Because God has told them, if I go with you, I'll consume you. And now he said, okay, I will go with you. So how can God be with his sinful people and not consume them, not destroy them? Well, the intermediate solution is to be found in the book of Leviticus. Uh, If you're going to start a Bible reading scheme uh, in the next year, I recommend one that puts Leviticus quite close to the end. Uh, it's, It's one where we get stuck. But one of the reasons that it's there is to show us how God can dwell with his people. The elaborate ceremonies and sacrifices are there for God to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. Everything is cleansed in the tabernacle so that God can be with them. There's elaborate ceremonies and sacrifices that must be made to deal with the people's sin and uncleanness so that God can dwell with his people. And yet, if you think about the the timeline of the Bible, if you think of the story... The people who do go with God in the wilderness are consumed. That whole generation in the end is wiped out by God. So it's only really a temporary solution to sort of get them by. And the question lingers on all the way through scripture. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? Well, the question lingers on. And then later on in the Bible story, a temple is built. And another question that you might not even have thought of with this is introduced. So 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon there is asking a really important question isn't he? Not just how can a holy God dwell with his people. But how can an uncontainable God dwell amongst his people? If the heavens can't hold him then how much less a building? How can God be with his people? And we can answer that by his omnipresence, can't we? We can say, well, God is everywhere. But how can God be with his people in a way that he's not with other people? See what I mean? How would they be special if God is with everybody? Because God is everywhere. No, there must be a way that God can dwell with his people. The unholy, uncontainable God can dwell somehow with a sinful, earthbound people. And that is one of the questions that's sort of left hanging all the way to the end of the Old Testament. 
how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can an uncontainable God be contained? And that's what makes the coming of Jesus so radical when you get to this phrase in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus being God with us means that God is finally dwelling with his people. Indeed, John 1, uh, 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as one of uh, as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt among us is, is the word tabernacled amongst us, like the temple in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle there. God is finally dwelling with his people. How? Well, because in Jesus, God deals with our sin. That's what we're told, aren't we? In his name, Jesus, he would save his people from their sin. Jesus does what Leviticus could never do by itself. He takes unclean people and he makes them clean. He takes sinful people and he declares them righteous. He justifies them. He pardons them of their sin while still seeing justice done by his own blood. God with us at Christmas is only really possible because of what Jesus does at Easter. We normally think about that the other way around, don't we? We think Easter is only possible because of Christmas. You know, that God could only uh, die on the cross because he came into the world. And that's true. But equally, Christmas is only possible because of Easter. Only because Jesus would die on the cross could God come into the world and dwell with sinful people. They depend on each other. But that just takes us up to about 33 AD, doesn't it? What about now? Well, the saga continues. God with us is not just something that we experience back then. As we look back to God made a span. As we look back to Jesus dwelling uh, among sinful people. It's something that we experience now. God continues to dwell with his people. Now possible in a fuller way because of Jesus' sacrificial death. Jesus told his disciples as he gave them the Great Commission, didn't he? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God actually is with us now because Jesus is with us now. Which is fitting, isn't it? Because he's God. Jesus is God's with us. And Jesus is with us. The Apostle Paul knew that experience of Jesus with him as well. Acts 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now in the context when it says the Lord there, it means the Lord Jesus. Jesus was with him, granting him success in his mission, protecting him. As Paul uh, fulfills the Great Commission... Jesus is with him. But how is Jesus with us? Well, Steve alluded to it earlier, didn't he? Jesus is with us now by his spirit. So John 14, 16 and 17. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, consistently the New Testament tells us that the Spirit dwells in Christians. He is God with us day by day. And through him, Christ dwells in us. The whole Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are with us as the Spirit is in us. 
because the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, you don't get that very often now, do you? Sort of quoted, but that's the reason, one of the reasons we're not Eastern Orthodox, is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So when we have the Spirit in us, we have the Father and the Son. He's the Spirit of the Father, but he's also the Spirit of the Son. So if we have the Spirit dwelling in us, we have the whole Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We have God with us all the time. So let me tease out some implications for us this evening uh, of God being with us. The first implication is that God is on our side. God is on our side. The angels said it at Christmas time, didn't they? Peace and goodwill towards men on whom his favour rests. God brings a message of peace and goodwill to us at Christmas. It's the message of not, not just a sort of temporary truce, but a lasting peace. God is for us. It's not just the case that we are for God, though that is true. But what I mean by that is God is working for our good. It's not just that we're working for God's good. God is actually working for our good. That's not to make the gospel man-focused. Actually, how is God working for our good? Well, he's working to make us more like the Lord Jesus. He's working to make us the best that we can be. And that's also glorifying to Jesus, isn't it? Imagine loving your son so much that you want everybody else to be like your son. It's glorifying to Jesus when God moulds us into the character of his son. It's glorifying that he works for our good in that he changes us into the likeness of Jesus. And he does that through all sorts of means, doesn't he? He does that through means that we we like and he does that through means that we don't like, things like suffering. But even in that, God is not working to harm us. He's with us. He's working for our good. That's not to say that everything we do and everything we turn our hand to will succeed in this life problem free. Well, I'm not preaching this evening, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel to you this evening, say, if it's God with you, everything in your life will be wonderful. I mean, think about it, it never really meant that in the Old Testament. Think about Joseph that we mentioned earlier. Where was God with him and working for his good when he was Potiphar's slave? That's one of the situations. And the other one was when he was falsely accused and thrown in prison. God was working for his good. It's hardly an easy life for Joseph, is it, if you think about it? But what it means is that God sustained him through those difficult circumstances. And it all ended in his promotion to the most powerful man in Egypt after Pharaoh. And we too have a glorious future. But it's not really in this life, but in the one to come. That's the true prosperity and success, if you like, that God is working towards for us. So we have no need to fear. Some of us fear sometimes that God is against us. But Jesus shows us that God is for us. He really is in all the circumstances of our life. The second implication is that God is still with us by his spirit. And that means that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I heard somebody in Weatherspoons this week. I was having a coffee in there. And somebody said, oh, yes, you know, body is a temple, isn't it? So you've got to have... And he was using that to justify having a large breakfast. Not really sure how that's treating your body as a temple. But, uh, you know, you sort of think, well, body's a temple, so you've got to look after it. But that's not exactly what the Bible means when it uses that phrase. So one of the implications that the Bible has of the spirit dwelling in us is found in 1 Corinthians 6. So 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other person a sin, a per, sin a person commits 
is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So do you see there, it's not exactly talking about eating well and going to the gym. It's not about making your body look pretty like a temple. It's in fact talking about the fact that God owns you body and soul, both. It's not just your spirit that must honour God, it's your body too. So Paul's application of God being with us by his spirit actually is that we shouldn't use our bodies for sexually moral purposes. Sexual activity outside the context of marriage as the Bible defines it. That might seem a little bit strange as a Christmas application, if you like, but it's where the Bible takes us with this. This is where it goes with this. And perhaps it's something that we all need to hear again. So our body belongs to God, so we need to use it to glorify God. And part of that is using it right in the sphere of sexual relationships. And then final implication, God is with us on mission. Did you notice that the references to God being with us in the New Testament were linked with us being on mission? Christ being with us as he gave the Great Commission. Christ being with Paul as he continued on his mission in Corinth. Let me give you another one, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What that means for us is that God is for us on mission, as we go on mission to the ends of the earth. Does that mean, though, that God is only with us when we're on mission? Yes. Yes, it does. That probably wasn't the answer you were expecting, but it's true. Because, as Christians, we're to always be on mission. Let me explain. That doesn't mean that every second of the day you have to speak to people about the Lord Jesus. That's not what I mean by being on mission all the time. But it does mean that our lives are fundamentally reorientated, have been given a new direction. We're looking for opportunities to speak about the Lord Jesus. We're seeking to live lives that prompt questions about the Lord Jesus. Our lives are to be built around him and his mission to bring the good news to the world. So if we're doing that, we're on mission. Now, of course, we can be on mission badly, can't we? Uh, Not always seeking opportunities. Not living in ways that honour Jesus, watching dodgy 1970s films or spending all our time on football. Does God leave us then? No. Even though greats like Spurgeon thought that he would for a time, no. Because when we do that, it's fundamentally against our new nature. We are now fundamentally different people to who we were before. If you think about it, before we were Christians, we didn't even have that mission to be on. We hadn't had our, our direction change. And instead, God offers restoration. He brings us back onto the right track. And he may even use us to our own surprise when mission is the last thing on our mind. God is working throughout. But it does mean that we need to think about how uh, we can be on mission. If we've been given this great commission, if we've been given the Holy Spirit to be with us, to equip us to do that... We need to think through in 2019, how are we going to do that? How are we going to use God's energy, God's strength, God himself dwelling in us to share the message with people? Because God is with us throughout. God is still working. God is still our Emmanuel. God is still with us. So let's be encouraged that God is with us. 
Let's live like God is with us. And let's be on mission because God is with us.